Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, uh, John chapter 1 for a time of study in God's Word uh, this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to John chapter 1, uh, verse 14, and my goal today is to cover verses 14 through uh, 18. And the title of the message this morning is How Christ Has Explained God. How Christ Has Explained God. How many of you have heard of mansplaining and you know what it is? Raise your hand. Okay. For those of you that don't know what it is, and even for those of you who do, uh, permit me to explain Mansplaining is a combination of two words, the word man and the word explaining. And you put those two together and you have the word mansplaining. And now you all know what it's like to have something mansplained to you. Actually, the word mansplaining uh, made it into the dictionary, I believe, in 2018. And Merriam-Webster's Dictionary describes mansplaining as something that occurs, and this is in quotes here, when a man talks condescendingly to someone, especially a woman, about something he has incomplete knowledge of (laughs) with the mistaken assumption that he knows more about it than the person he's talking to does, unquote. I sure hope that I have never unwittingly been guilty of mansplaining, but I must confess that I love to intentionally mansplain things to my wife, (laughs) just to see her roll her eyes. Sometimes a topic will come up and I'll say to her, well, you know, and then I'll Uh, go off into a very elementary explanation of something that she absolutely did not need. Anymore, all she needs to hear me saying is, well, you know, and she knows right there to stop me. Sometimes my wife and I are watching television and and, uh, a word will come up, kind of a big word, but not a huge word, and I'll start to explain the meaning of that word to my wife, uh, even though I know that she knows what it means. And all I have to do is just say, Donna, now that word means, and she's like, Milton, stop. Uh, and I never get any further than, than that, because if there's anything that my wife cannot stand, it's mansplaining. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to see how it is that Jesus Christ has explained God. In verse 18, look at this verse. John says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. We can call this Christ-splaining. And what he is explaining is God. And we will see how Christ is the perfect 
person to explain God to us because Christ, as we have already seen, has been with God from the very beginning. And because Christ is God and because Christ knows infinitely more about God than any of us and because he knows how to explain God perfectly and he has done so. And in our passage for this morning, the Apostle John is going to give us his personal testimony regarding how Christ explained God so perfectly to him and to his fellow disciples. In fact, notice the personal pronouns here. In verse 14, John says, the word dwelt among us. Later in that verse, he says, and we saw his glory. And in verse 16, he says, of his fullness, we have all received. So this is personal for John. What we have here is John's personal testimony regarding how he and his companions came to personally understand God through Christ. They did not come to understand God through introspective searching of their own hearts, nor by engaging in private philosophical meditation and theological research. No, it was through their personal encounter with the person of Jesus Christ that they came to understand God. So if you're here this morning and you want to know God, you want to know the truth about God, come to Jesus and be a student of him. And you will find that he is a great, the ultimate explainer of God to you. Don't consult your own heart or your own thoughts. Your heart is more deceitful than all else, the Bible says. Come to Jesus and watch Jesus and listen to Jesus. And in the end, your personal testimony will end up being much like John's in our passage today. And as we work our way through verses 14 through 18 today, we're going to observe five declarations, five declarations that John makes to tell us how Christ revealed the Father to him and to his companions. And the first of these declarations is number one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Observe what John says at the beginning of verse 14. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is actually now the fourth time that John has spoken of Jesus Christ as the word, representing Christ as more than simply the one who spoke the words of God, but as the one who is himself the word or the message of God to man. As we're going to see through the rest of John's gospel, 
Jesus didn't just deliver God's message to mankind. He is the message. He is the revelation of the heart and the mind of the Father. And John tells us here that the Word became flesh. In other words, this eternally preexistent Word, who was God, took on human flesh and became a man. In his commentary on this verse, Carl Laney describes this opening statement of verse 14 as the most astounding fact of history. And I totally agree. This truth of the incarnation of Christ has so shaped Western civilization that I don't think any of us in our modern world can conceive of how unthinkably radical the truth of Christ's incarnation was in John's day. As we touched on a couple weeks ago, most of the world of John's day had imbibed the spirit of dualism, which did a couple of, of things. First of all, it separated reality between the physical and the spiritual, and secondly, it held that the spiritual realm was good and that the physical or the material realm was less than good and therefore beneath the dignity of God to create or to really even care that much about. Some in John's day believed that the material world was evil, so they sought to deny themselves any physical pleasures in this world. Others held that the physical world was beneath God's concern. So they did what they wanted to do physically under the mistaken notion that God didn't care about what they did with their bodies. But into such a climate comes John's teaching in John chapter 1, Verse 1, which teaches us that the Word who was God actually created the physical world and everything in it. And John teaches us here in verse 14 that this divine Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Such a notion was as radical as it was unthinkable to the Greek mind of John's day and it was a borderline blasphemous thought to the Jewish mind. But sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. Sometimes the truth lies beyond our human categories of thought. And John is declaring that truth here. And because of this truth, thoughtful Christians have always had a high view of the material world which they view, we can say, as thrice exalted. First, it is exalted because it was created directly by God. Second, it is exalted because God himself took on flesh and lived in our physical world. And third, it is exalted because after his death, Christ was raised from the dead with a physical body, and return to heaven in that physical body and exist in that physical body forever. These realities did not fit at all in the paradigms 
of John's day, they exploded the paradigms and rearranged the way people thought. Even more wonderful, John's complete statement here in verse 14 is this. Look at the text. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Almost literally, the idea here is that Christ tabernacled among us. He took on human flesh and made that the tabernacle that he spread over himself so that he could live among us as sinners or live among us sinners in this fallen, broken world. In the Old Testament, as many of you know, we see how God lived in a tabernacle among his people. It was there that God made himself available for mankind to meet with him to encounter him. It was there that he put his glory on display. Later in Old Testament history, when Solomon's temple was built in Jerusalem, Solomon prayed a prayer of dedication for that temple. And after he prayed, the glory of God came down and filled the place with smoke. And thereafter, God lived in the holy of holies of that temple and lived among his people. But you keep reading and you come to Ezekiel and you see how the presence of God, the glory of God departed from the holy of holies because of the rebellion of the people. But now here in John 1.14, we learn that the glory of God has returned to earth in the person of Jesus Christ who took on human flesh and tabernacled among us, a truth which leads us to the second declaration that John makes in his personal testimony regarding how Christ explained the Father to him and to his companions. Number two, John says, we saw his glory as from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw his glory as from the Father, full of grace and truth. As a result of how Christ took on flesh and tabernacled among John and his companions, John says in verse 14, And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word glory speaks of brightness and splendor, but it can also speak of the gravitas or the weightiness of a person's character that makes them worthy of fame and honor. And John says, we saw that. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. The expression only begotten that we see here in the New American Standard translation translates a compound word. It's the word monogenes, monogenes. It's the word mono, which means only, and the word genes, which is either from the word that means begotten or from the word that speaks of a kind of something. Either understanding works here. There is a powerful sense 
in which Jesus was the only human being ever to be uniquely begotten of the Father, having been conceived in the womb of Mary through the Holy Spirit. He had no earthly father. God was his father. Yet the term can also be understood as speaking of someone who is one of a kind, monogenes, someone who is one of a kind. Understood in this way, John is speaking of Christ as God's one-of-a-kind Son, the incomparable and unparalleled Son from the Father who is in a class all by Himself. We've already learned from verse 12 that all those who believe in Jesus are given the right to become children of God. But Christ is a son of God in a way that transcends how you and I become sons of God. Christ is the eternally preexistent son of God, uniquely born of God into this world, and he is the incomparable son of God through whom God fulfills his mission of making himself known and bringing salvation to the world. Earlier in John 1.1, John described the word as being with God or literally toward God. Yet here in verse 14, we see God identified as the Father for the first time of many times that we're going to see in this gospel. As for Jesus, John says, and we saw his glory Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was manifested by the pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day that led the children of Israel through the wilderness, a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. Yet here, John says that the glory of God manifested in the person of Jesus Christ was manifested not by fire and smoke, but by grace and truth, which Jesus embodied in every single thing he ever did. For John here speaks of Jesus as being full of grace and truth. And both of these qualities of grace and truth are worth treasuring. The word grace speaks of unmerited, undeserved favor that brings joy to the recipient. And this is what Christ did to sinners throughout his earthly ministry. Christ exhibited a tremendous grace that made him an attractive companion of sinners. Being as perfect as Jesus was, one would think that sinners would be afraid to even get close to him or allow him to get close to them. Yet we see in the gospels that sinners were actually drawn to this perfect Jesus because they experienced in him an unusual grace, a perfect grace, a spirit of genuine goodwill and benevolence that they knew was undeserved and yet somehow 
It was there. Christ also showed his grace towards sinners through his countless miracles of healing and through his words of patient instruction and mercy towards his disciples and towards others. He was full of grace, but he wasn't just full of grace. John says he was full of truth as well. In fact, he was the truth. He always thought the truth. Jesus always spoke the truth, even when it would cost him his life. When the high priest would ask Jesus at his trial if he was the Messiah, Jesus could have played coy and said, no, I'm not the Messiah, you think that I am. But he didn't do that. He said, I am. And not only that, but you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus couldn't help but speak the truth because it was his nature. Later in this very gospel, in John chapter 8, when the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus and telling him that they were Abraham's children, Jesus said, no, you're of your father, the devil, and you're doing the desires of your father. They hated Jesus for that, and they ended up killing him, thereby showing how right he was in the true words that he had spoken about them. Jesus was the ultimate truth speaker in every way and on every topic. And John is saying here that when Jesus spoke about God, for example, you knew you were getting the straight scoop about God. And that Jesus was not just pandering. When Jesus spoke about mankind, you knew that you were getting the truth about mankind. When Jesus spoke about you, John would say, you could know that he was speaking the truth about you. Even if what he was saying completely rocked your world and contradicted everything that you had ever thought about yourself before. And when Jesus spoke about himself, you knew, John would say, to take him at his word. Jesus didn't just speak the truth. He was the truth. Yet, let's put the two together. When he spoke the truth, he always did so in a way that was imbued with grace, especially when he would speak that truth to those who were his sheep. Imagine that. Imagine this morning that I were to approach you and say to you, I'd like to introduce somebody to you this morning who knows absolutely everything about you. Your every thought, your every word, your every deed that you have done or thought or spoken throughout your life, there is nothing that this person does not know about you. And on top of that, he even knows your complete internet history. Would you want to meet such a person? Not automatically. I think first you would want to know if this person 
is good. Because all that knowledge about you and the hands of an evil person would be your worst nightmare, right? You would also want to know if this person is full of grace. And if I said to you, he is good and he is full of grace, would you then want to meet him? I think you would although I'm sure you would still do so with fear and trembling. Well, there is such a person. It's the person John is describing here, and his name is Jesus. And he's ready to meet you. Ultimately, I think we can say that all of us as human beings have three great needs. First, to be known. Second, to be loved. And third, to be known and loved by the same friend. And as Timothy Keller has said on a number of occasions, to be loved but not known is superficial. Because we're always left wondering if that person would still love us if they knew the full truth about us. To be known but not loved, well, that's our worst nightmare. But to be fully known and fully loved by the same person who is full of grace and truth Well, that's a taste of heaven itself, and it meets our deepest need. And it's the very thing that begins to bring us out of hiding and into the light of truth so that we can be saved and begin to really grow as human beings. And Christ is the one through whom that happens. And John is telling us here that this was his and his companions' experience of Jesus, and it was overwhelming for them. In fact, notice again how John says here that Christ did not just exhibit grace and truth, but that he was full of grace and truth. And this fullness of grace and truth and perfect balance was the most notable thing about Jesus' glory that John says that he and his companions experienced in Jesus. There's a third declaration that John makes in his personal testimony regarding how Christ explained the Father to him and to his companions. Number three, we heard John the Baptist testify to the truth about Jesus. We heard John the Baptist testify to the truth about Jesus. Observe what John says in verse 15. This is the Apostle John talking, and he says, John, speaking of John the Baptist, testified about him, speaking of Jesus, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John, the apostle, knows that John the Baptist said these things about Christ because John was a 
follower of John the Baptist before he became a follower of Christ. And we're going to see this uh, pointed out later in this very chapter. So John, the apostle, is speaking from personal experience here. He literally heard John the Baptist say what he is quoting him as saying here. He saw John the Baptist point to Jesus one day and say, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This statement, seemingly contradictory statement of John the Baptist consists of three parts. First, John the Baptist describes Christ as the one who comes after him chronologically. And indeed, this is true. John entered into his public ministry before Jesus Christ did. So there's a real sense in which Christ came after John on the public stage. But John does not view this chronological order as indicating anything about his own superiority over Jesus. For he says in verse 15, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. And as for why John believes this about Jesus, He states yet a third truth about Jesus saying, for he existed before me. Literally, he says, for before me, he was. So this is a paradigm buster if there ever was one. John is saying, Jesus came after me, but he's higher than me because he was before me. Go figure. We know from Luke's gospel that John the Baptist was conceived six months before Christ was conceived. So John would have been born before Christ. Yet John here describes Christ as one who existed before me. And this guy shows a remarkable awareness on John the Baptist's part that Jesus did not come into existence at his conception in the womb of Mary, but that he existed in eternity past and simply took on human flesh at his incarnation. Amazingly, John the Baptist, even at this early stage, had a very well-developed Christology, and he's happy to give all the glory to Jesus and recognize and speak of Jesus' superior status given the fact that Jesus eternally pre-existed long before John the Baptist was even born. I want you to appreciate for just a moment before we move on how remarkable it is for John the Baptist to speak about Jesus in this way, even though he entered into his public ministry before Jesus did. For many men, it would be a heady thing to be out in the wilderness and multitudes every day are coming out to hear you preach. And some of that multitude esteem you so highly that they're asking you, are you the Messiah? This was John the Baptist's experience, but he never allowed any of this to go to his head. He pointed to Jesus and said, He is greater than I am. He has a higher rank than I. For before me, 
He already was. And John was happy to let all the glory go to Jesus. We'll see this even more next week. I'm not going to mention any names here, but if John the Baptist were like some of our well-known politicians today, upon seeing Jesus become so popular, John the Baptist would have gone around saying, I was the one who made him famous. He was a nobody before he got my endorsement. So however highly you think of Jesus, just realize that I came first. And I'm the one who told you all about him. Aren't you glad John the Baptist was not like that? It takes a special man to do what John the Baptist did. And he did his job well. The Apostle John was a disciple of John the Baptist, and he received this early education in Christology from John the Baptist, and he learned that Christ would come after John the Baptist on the public stage, which actually happened. He learned that Jesus Christ was of a higher rank than John the Baptist, and he learned that Christ already was before John the Baptist came into existence and the Apostle John believed those truths, and he's passing those truths on to us as he is introducing his gospel to us. There's a fourth declaration that John makes in his personal testimony regarding how Christ explained the Father to him and to his companions. And by the way, could I get some sermon notes? I, I made a change, and I don't remember uh, which one I changed. I don't want to lead you astray. Uh, so number four um, is from the fullness of Christ, we received grace upon grace. From the fullness of Christ, we received grace upon grace. Observe what John says in verse 16. He says, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. In making this testimonial statement, the Apostle John is looking back primarily on his experience of Christ during Christ's three years of ministry on earth, which John is going to try to chronicle uh, for us in his gospel. And in verse 14, John speaks of Christ as someone who is full of grace and truth, and he's indicating here that Jesus allowed that fullness to be imparted to John and to his companions, so much so that John says here, for of his fullness, we have all received. And then notice how John quantifies this fullness saying, and grace upon grace. A good way of paraphrasing John's Idea here is to say, for of his fullness we have all received wave after wave of grace. John is almost literally depicting himself here and his companions as standing on the shore of a vast ocean and wave after wave of grace from Jesus Christ keeps coming in. One wave comes in, a wave of grace and washes over them, and then before that wave has even fully spent itself, another wave is already forming and coming in. This is how John felt during his three years of 
following Jesus Christ when he was on earth. Every day of following Christ was a new adventure in grace. And John never ceased to be blown away by Jesus and by the grace of it all. And this is still how John the Apostle feels even now as he's writing this gospel decades later after walking with Christ for so many years. And I hope that's your testimony as well. Having made this declaration to us, John sees this as a teachable moment. So listen to what he says in verse 17. He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. We all know that Moses was a great figure in redemptive history. In the book of Exodus, we learn how God gave his law to the people of Israel through Moses. This law required obedience to all of God's commandments all the time, and it pronounced a curse upon anyone who did not always live up to all of God's commandments, which means that everybody is under the curse of the law, which is why the Apostle Paul teaches us in the book of Galatians that the law has shut up everyone in sin. But John says here in verse 17 that while the law came through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Such a statement by the Apostle John does not mean that there was no truth, that there was no grace of God revealed in the law of God. The fact is the law of God was a grace, an amazing grace from God because it revealed God's holiness and showed us our sin and served as our tutor to bring us to Christ and show us our need for him. But John's language here indicates that Jesus Christ ushered in a whole new era that moved the world light years beyond anything that the law could have ever achieved by itself. The law contained shadows of what was to come, but the real substance of grace and truth were fully realized through Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying. Ultimately, then, it is through Christ that we fully see the truth about a holy God and the truth about our sinful selves. And in that very moment of truth, we experience grace from Jesus that is there to meet us in the moment. It is through Christ that we realize the truth that we are far more sinful than we ever knew before, and we are far more loved by God than we ever dreamed possible. And for those who have believed in Christ, grace and truth are always together. As Christians, we never experience the truth of Christ without at the same time experiencing the grace of Christ. And we never experience the grace of Christ without the truth of Christ. And it is this experience of his grace and truth that 
begins to give us the courage to face the truth about ourselves and about our sin, knowing that there will always be grace from Christ to meet us in our painful moments of self-disclosure. By the way, I should point out here that in verse 17, we find the first mention of the name Jesus in John's gospel. You may not have noticed that as we were working through these verses, but right here is the first time John identifies Jesus in his gospel and uses the name. John has been talking about Jesus all along, but it's only now that John identifies him by name and he calls him Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the One who is destined to reign as God's eternal King. Jesus Christ is the One through whom the grace and the truth of God has come to us in fullest measure. Also, I should mention here that the word grace is used here in verse 17, or its use here in this verse is the fourth occurrence of the word grace just in the last four verses alone. And these four uses of the word grace would probably leave you with the impression that, man, we're going to be seeing the word grace all over the gospel of John as it continues. But this is, in fact, the last time that John uses the word grace in his gospel. This does not mean that grace is not present through the rest of his gospel. In fact, one way of looking at what's going to happen is this. John introduces the concept of grace in these verses, and then he cracks that grace open like an egg. And what comes spilling out is the rest of his gospel. As John shows us the full definition of grace which is Jesus Christ in all that he says and does in John's gospel from this point forward. Well, there's a fifth and final declaration that John makes in his personal testimony regarding how Christ explained the Father to him and to his companions. Let's word it this way. Jesus, the incomparable Son of God, has explained God. Jesus, the incomparable Son of God, has explained God. Observe what John says in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. John starts this verse with a negative statement that no one has seen God at any time. This is a true statement. Yes, Moses did see something of God after God passed by him in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 33. Yes, there are people in the Old Testament who are said to have seen God on very meaningful levels, but John's point is that no one has seen God in the fullness of all of his glory. 
For God says to Moses in Exodus 33:20, "No one can see me and live." But, and this is John's point, there is one exception, and that exception is Jesus. Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, Jesus, who is the only begotten from the Father, has seen God in the fullness of His glory, which is why John goes on to say, He has explained Him to us. And the result is that we who have seen Jesus Christ have seen the Father in a deeper way than we could ever have experienced in any other way. The Greek word that is translated explained here is the word we get our word exegesis from. To exegete something is to bring forth the meaning of something, to draw out the meaning of something. It can mean to narrate something or to give a full accounting of it. And John is saying that Christ has exegeted God, not just through the words he spoke, but also through the deeds that he did, and also through the person that he was while he lived among men and women. And John is saying, Jesus Christ has given us all the explanation of God that we ever needed. We now understand God because of him, because Christ has given us a full accounting of God in all the ways that were most needful to us. And it is even through him that we now even know how to read our Old Testaments. And the veil is removed by Christ where we now read even the Old Testament differently than we ever did before. And we see Christ everywhere. Notice the two ways that John describes Jesus in verse 18, which helps us to appreciate the value of his explanation of God in his incarnation. First, John describes him as the only begotten God. Some of your translations say the only begotten Son. The oldest manuscripts say only begotten God. And so that's why the New American Standard uses the word God here, we could translate what John is saying as this. He's referring to Jesus as the incomparably unique one who is God. So not only has Jesus seen God in the fullness of his glory, he is God, the incomparable God. This is Jesus Christ, who is the unique and unparalleled Son of God born into this world who is also God, meaning that he is the perfect person to explain God to us, right? But John also describes Jesus as, look at the text, the one who is present tense in the bosom of the Father. This is actually John describing Jesus in his present state after Jesus' ascension to heaven. In John 1.1, 1, 1, John taught us that from the very beginning, the Word was with God. And now here he is teaching us that the Word is back with God, and not just with God, but in the bosom of the Father, speaking of the embrace of the Father. 
And John is saying to us, this one who was begotten of God, this one who became flesh and who dwelt among us, this one from whose fullness we have all received, this one who has shown us his glory and explained God to us through his words and his deeds, this one is right now in the embrace of the Father. This embrace is an embrace of love and affection, and it is also an embrace of celebration and affirmation. The way that we would embrace someone after a job well done. Part of what John is implying by this embrace here is that the Father really loved the job that Jesus did in explaining him to the world. During the Winter Olympics several weeks ago, a Russian figure skater shocked the world by performing below expectation. She was expected to win the gold, but as some of you may have seen, she stumbled through her routine and failed to earn a medal at all. She was downcast at the end of her routine, and as she came off the ice, and to make matters worse, when she came off the ice, she was greeted coldly by one of her coaches who scolded her. But this is not what happened to Jesus when he came off the ice, when he returned to his father. He nailed his performance in every way. And when he returned to his father, his father greeted him with the warmest embrace of celebration and affirmation. And this is good news for you and me. Because it tells us that the way that Jesus explained the father to us when he was on earth was exactly what the Father wanted. And this is all so good for us to keep in mind as we today ponder how best we might come to know God. There are many people in our world today who have much to say to us about God, and they would love the opportunity to explain God to us Oprah Winfrey would love for you to listen to her explanation of God. Deepak Chopra, Bart Ehrman, and Rob Bell, and many others would love for you to listen to their explanation of God. But none of them are the only begotten God. None of them were with God from the very beginning. None of them got crucified, and then were raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and embraced by God the Father the way Jesus is being embraced by the Father for a job well done in explaining God. But all of that is true of Jesus, meaning that you should value his explanation of God over anyone else's explanation of God. And you should value his explanation of God 
infinitely more than you value your own thoughts about God as well. I ask you this morning, is it your desire to know God and to see him and to really honestly know the truth about God? Is it your desire to see him? On some level, I think this desire resides in every soul, whether they are Christians or not. It really is true what Augustine said many centuries ago. He says, our hearts are restless, and we sang about that earlier in our service. Our hearts are restless, he said to God, until they find their rest in you. Bertrand Russell was an avowed atheist of the last century. He chose not to believe in the existence of God. Yet at the age of 44, he wrote these words in a letter to a friend. Listen to what this atheist says. Quote, the center of me is always a terrible pain. A curious, wild pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains, something transfigured and infinite, the beatific vision, God, he says. He goes on to say, I do not find it. I do not think it is to be found But the love of it is my life. It fills every passion I have. It is the actual spring of life in me. Bertrand Russell is confessing that at the center of his being is a searching for a God whose existence he's chosen to deny. And it leaves him in terrible pain because he won't look and see the God that is. That pain that Bertrand Russell found within himself is on some level in every person. It is in you and it is in me. In every heart, there is a longing for God and a longing to see him. And this longing was in the apostle John and his companions. And John is telling us that this longing for God was more than satisfied by Jesus Christ. And the same can be true for you and me as well. As we come into the full realization of grace and truth through Jesus, having believed in him, we find that the God that our souls have always longed for is him. We should appreciate how it was that Jesus went about explaining God the lengths that he went to. Jesus did not shout his explanation of God from the distant comforts of heaven. No, he left heaven's glories and became flesh and dwelt among us to reveal God to us. He even suffered and died upon a cross in order to reveal the Father's great love for sinners and his willingness to save them 
and give them atonement for their sins. And he was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father so that he could, from that position at the right hand of God, give you atonement for your sins and be your Savior if you believe in him. So if you have never done so, I plead with you to cry out to Jesus today. Call upon his name as your Lord and Savior. He will forgive you of your sins. He will give you the right to become a child of God, and he will happily explain the Father to you as you follow him day by day. And the more you get to know Jesus, the more you will understand God And you will discover that he is full of grace and full of truth. And you will find that he happily gives of his fullness of grace and truth to you. If you follow him one day, you will testify with the Apostle John and you will say of his fullness, I have received grace upon grace, wave after wave of grace. As we close this morning, let me just deliver a brief challenge to those of you who are believers. If you're taking notes and you have a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper, draw a circle somewhere on that paper and let that circle represent Jesus and all that there is to know about him and the fullness of all that there is to experience in him. Having drawn that circle, mark out how much of that circle you have experienced of Jesus and that you experientially know of Jesus at this point of your life. I'm sure that not many of you carved out more than 10% of that circle. And I think that's probably reasonable. And I want you to keep that exercise in mind as we work our way through the Gospel of John. There is more to Jesus than you know, my friend. There is so much about him still to learn. And your soul really needs to know him more. I urge you to become discontent with how much you know Jesus and to feel a drive to know him more. Ask probing questions regarding your present knowledge of Jesus. Here's some questions from Dane Ortland in his book entitled Deeper. And I quote, Are there vast tracts of who Jesus is, according to biblical revelation, that are unexplored? Have we unintentionally reduced Jesus to manageable, predictable proportions? Have we been looking at a junior varsity, decaffeinated, one-dimensional Jesus of our own making, thinking that we're looking at the real Jesus Have we been snorkeling in the shallows thinking we've hit the bottom of the Pacific? If you think the answer to any of those questions in your own life is yes, then John, 
The Gospel of John is the perfect gospel for you. The center of our faith is Jesus Christ. And the key to growing up in the Christian life is growing deep in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So pursue the knowledge of him and let our study of John's gospel take you deeper in your experiential knowledge of this one so wonderful as Jesus who is full of grace and truth. And let's pray and let's ask God to help us to do that as we continue to journey together through this book as a congregation. Lord, we thank you so much for the words we've had the privilege of looking at today. This is just the prologue of John's gospel, verses 1 through 18. And John so wonderfully is whetting our appetite and introducing us to this one who left the apostle John and his companions so dazzled and so amazed, and they were willing to to give up their lives in service to this one who had shown them such grace and mercy. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this gospel with the aim of helping us to see and understand what he and his companions saw and came to understand and experience of you through Jesus. And I pray to you, Lord, on behalf of myself and the people of this great congregation that you would remove the scales from our eyes and help us to study through this book and to see Jesus as we have never seen him before. Put within us a seething discontent where every day we awaken with the desire saying to you, I want to know you, and then I want to know you more. And as we do come to know you more deeply, Lord Jesus, there is so much good and so much transformation that lies downstream of that. So we thank you for this gospel, all that we will learn in the days to come, and we thank you for this prologue to this gospel that we have looked at over the length of two messages. If there's any in this room, Lord, that have never believed in Christ and experienced salvation through him, touch their hearts and draw them to yourself. Bring them into the arms of Jesus even this morning. And may they come to know the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said,